Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 19th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel decision required a claimant to attend a reevaluation by a PQME despite the fact that the doctor had moved his office. Here's what happened in the case of Sharon Frink versus Shasta Tihama Trinity Joint Community College. Frink injured her left knee and fingers and alleged to have injured her right knee while employed as a groundskeeper for the employer. While in pro-per, she was evaluated by panel QME Dr. Santelliano in Anderson, California. Later, Frink became represented and amended her claim to include bilateral knees. The employer denied the new injury and requested a reevaluation by the same QME. However, after the initial evaluation, the QME moved his office from Anderson to Redding, California, approximately 15 miles away. Frank refused to agree to be reevaluated in Redding and requested a new QME panel. The work comp judge refused to grant the petition to compel the reevaluation, but the WCAB panel reversed and ordered the reevaluation with the same QME. Labor Code Section 4062.3J says that the parties, to the extent possible, shall utilize the same medical evaluator who prepared the previous evaluation to resolve the medical dispute. The WCAB therefore concluded that the legislature intended to prevent the QME selection process from restarting where there is a reasonable possibility that the injured worker can return to the same medical evaluator. This interpretation both minimizes medical legal costs and thwarts attempts to doctor shop. On the other hand, Rule 34B says that the QME shall schedule an appointment at the medical office listed on the panel selection form. The WCAB panel found that this rule applies only to the initial comprehensive medical legal evaluation. This finding gives the greatest effect to the intention of Labor Code Section 4062.3J. However, a QME does not become unavailable merely because the QME moves his or her office to another location within the general geographical area of the employee's residence. The panel concluded that the QME's office in Reading is within the general geographical area of where this worker lived. CVS Pharmacies won round one in a battle with the DEA. Early this year, the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration took unprecedented action against two CVS pharmacies in Florida for alleged unwarranted sales of narcotic medications. However, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit issued an order temporarily lifting the suspension pending further hearings in the case. The DEA said the two CVS pharmacies near Orlando, Florida, were inappropriately filing prescriptions for the painkiller oxycodone and had suspicious sales of other controlled substances. CVS said the DEA had acted in an arbitrary and capricious manner in ordering sales suspended and that remedial steps had already been taken by CVS and were sufficient. It said it would suffer irreparable harm if forced to stop filling prescriptions at the pharmacies. The litigation stems from the DEA's battle against prescription drug abuse, which has surged in the United States to eclipse abuse of most illicit drugs, including heroin and cocaine. 
The DEA said that about 7 million Americans abuse pharmaceuticals made with controlled substances for purposes not related to medicine and that Florida is the center of the growing epidemic. The CVS appeal comes on the heels of a similar stay order issued to Cardinal Healthcare Incorporated after the DEA tried to prevent it from selling any controlled substances from its facility in Lakeland, Florida. The DEA said four of Cardinal's customers, including the two CVS stores, filled illegitimate prescriptions. And now our fraud report. A jury convicted a former state correctional officer and his wife of attempted perjury related to workers' compensation claims they filed as a result of his shooting at a San Francisco sex club. The jury could not reach verdicts on all the remaining fraud-related charges against John Alfonso Smiley and his wife Cynthia Ann Bias Smiley. The district attorney said that her office would retry the two defendants on the remaining charges. The retrial date has been set for May 7th, and the sentencing for the two is set for April 20th. The couple is facing maximum terms of three years and eight months each. Smiley was shot in the pre-dawn hours in April 2008 after going to a swingers club with his 36-year-old wife where they engaged in sexual activity with strangers. A dispute arose after Smiley's condom broke while he was having sex with a woman he had just met and her companion later confronted Smiley outside and shot him. The gunman was never caught. Eleven months later, Smiley filed a workers' compensation claim saying he was gunned down by a parolee and the state began processing a claim that could have paid him several million dollars. The couple told the state compensation insurance fund that they were enjoying a night out in San Francisco when a parolee recognized Smiley at a bar, confronted him, and then shot him outside on the street. However, the district attorney told the jury there was no parolee. The prosecutor said that in the scope of his job in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation's Transportation Unit, he would not have angered a prisoner to the point of murder. He was a bus driver driving the people from point A to point B, and there's not enough time for a prisoner to hate him. Attorneys for the two defendants said that it really was a parolee who shot Smiley in the back. The gunman was never arrested. The defense lawyer said it doesn't matter whether Parolee shot Smiley as long as the defendant believed it was and was uh, it was a released felon who was responsible for his injury. And they claim the failure of San Francisco police to make an arrest in the case makes it impossible for Sacramento prosecutors to disprove Smiley's story. A Texas doctor accused of almost $375 million in false Medicare and Medicaid claims went unnoticed for half a decade by a fraud detection system that some critics say is broken. Officials believe this is the biggest Medicare fraud by a physician in history. Texas physician Jacques Roy and six others allegedly certified 11,000 Medicare beneficiaries through more than 500 home health care providers over five years. Those numbers would have made Roy's medical practice the biggest in the country. But an investigation into Roy and his business practices did not begin until about a year ago. The federal agency that administers Medicare has two sets of contractors, one to pay claims and another evaluating those claims for fraud. 
Federal officials who announced the indictment against Roy and six others acknowledged the problems with the system. They contend they have improved data analysis and are working to move away from having to pay and chase offenders. Others say Medicare is still very vulnerable to fraud. A former top health care prosecutor said it is a trust-based system that is ripe for the picking by criminals. Roy faces up to 100 years in prison if he's convicted of several counts of health care fraud and conspiracy to commit health care fraud. He is currently still in custody and is expected to remain in custody until the conclusion of his trial as he is deemed to be a flight risk. Medicare patients qualify for home health care if they are confined to their homes and need care there. However, federal investigators found some of these people were found working on their cars outside their home. A report by the HHS Inspector General's Office issued in November highlights problems with the contractors charged with weeding out fraud. And in regulatory news, Cal OSHA issued citations and penalties totaling over $500,000 for an August 9th explosion in Silmar, California, involving three employers, Rainbow uh, of Hope Scientific Sciences, Inc. and Realm Catalyst Incorporated. The explosion occurred when a pressure vessel containing compressed oxygen and hydrogen gas exploded. One worker lost his left arm below the elbow, the second critically injured employee lost his right arm below the elbow and his right leg below the knee, and the third worker was treated and released for minor injuries. Two of the injured men were preparing equipment for an upcoming strategic sciences sales demonstration promoting the Tylar gas experimental fuel. A cylinder holding gas exploded because it was being handled in a non-intrinsically safe work area. The employer previously knew that hydrogen gas is incompatible with oxidizers, yet it continued to manufacture and store the two gases in a mixture together. The employers failed to correct hazardous conditions that had been previously identified in two prior explosions, including one incident that resulted in the death of a worker in Simi Valley, California, in June 2010. The August 9th explosion took place on the same day of a hearing for the citations issued by the Cal OSHA against Realm Catalyst for the June 2010 explosion. And in medical news, a new study published in the Archives of Internal Medicine says that one in 10 older adults prescribed a powerful opioid painkiller after surgery was still filling prescriptions for the drug a year later. The patients in the study had not taken opioids before their surgeries, and all of the procedures were considered low pain. Researchers say that in such cases, the drugs should be prescribed carefully and patients followed closely. Researchers found that out of close to 400,000 patients aged 66 years and older who had short-stay surgery, about 7% were prescribed an opioid within a week of being discharged from the hospital. A year later, one out of every 10 patients initially prescribed the painkillers was still taking opioids. And some were taking stronger opioids than they'd first been prescribed. Surgeons typically have a generic post-surgery form for all patients that give them the option to prescribe powerful painkillers. The findings suggest that surgeons should reconsider prescribing opioids to patients who haven't had high pain surgery because of longer-term risks. 
Just how addictive the painkillers are remains a controversial issue. But as prescriptions for the drugs have skyrocketed in recent years, the number of people abusing and overdosing on them has increased as well. And in financial news, the WCIRB annual report shows a long-awaited increase in premium levels despite California's slow recovery from the worst economic downturn in decades. The estimated statewide written premium grew approximately $600 million from $7.1 billion in 2010 to an estimated $7.7 billion in 2011. The average cost of claims also showed modest growth in 2011, and its expense ratios continued to remain high. The increase in written premium was insufficient to reduce the accident year combined loss and expense ratio for 2011, which is projected to remain at 130%. Despite no change in advisory peer premium rates, many insurers filed for manual rate increases in 2011. The industry average filed manual rate as of July 2011 was $3.27. However, insurers continued to significantly discount their filed manual rates. The industry average charged rate for 2011 was $2.37, a significant discount from the industry average. And almost $4 below the industry average charged rate in the second half of 2003. Despite the discounting, the industry average charged rate has increased modestly for the last three consecutive years and for the first nine months of 2011 was almost 10% over that for 2008. Claim frequency in California has declined steadily for decades. This long-term decline has generally been attributed to shifts in the California economy to less hazardous occupations, increased mechanization, and greater attention to workplace safety. The California Office of Self-Insurance Plans released its latest summary of public self-insured claims data submitted by public self-insured employers. Employers covered in the summary include cities and counties, local, fire, school, transit, utility and special districts, as well as joint powers authorities. An analysis by the CWCI of more than 10 years worth of the data shows increases in the average loss per claim for the fifth consecutive year. These increases were led by escalating medical losses that pushed up total workers' compensation costs. The 10-year look-back shows that after climbing to a record high in 2002, California public self-insured's total paid losses fell 26% to a post-reform low by 2006. But now there's evidence that the post-reform decline in losses on public self-insured claims was short-lived. Aggregate paid losses have trended up, gaining nearly 32% over the last four years. The CWCI found that the increase in public self-insured loss payments over the last five years has been led by growth in medical losses, which have risen by over 37% from the post-reform low. And the average amount of indemnity paid has also increased by over 26%. The Office of Self-Insurance Plans also compiles private self-insured claims data. Updated figures from the California's private self-insurers will be released later this year. A New Year's Eve burglary of a California office building has led to the collapse of the leading AMA Guides Impairment Review Company. 
Impairment Resources LLC filed for bankruptcy after the break-in at its San Diego headquarters, which led to the compromise of information for roughly 14,000 people. That information included patient addresses, social security numbers, and medical diagnoses. Impairment Resources reviewed medical records taken on workers' compensation and auto casualty claims for roughly 600 insurance companies and other customers. It specialized in reviewing impairment ratings under various editions of the AMA guides. It also had offices in Framingham, Massachusetts and Kailua, Hawaii. Police never caught the criminals and company executives were required by law to report the breach to state attorneys general and the Department of Labor's Office of Inspector General. Some of those agencies are still investigating the break-in. The company faced the threat of customers and individuals who wanted to sue it over the privacy breach. Impairment Resources said that the cost of dealing with the breach was prohibitive, which led to its decision to file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy protection. And in other news, Liberty Mutual's Next Generation Predictive Modeling earned a 2012 Business Insurance Innovation Award during the Business Insurance Risk Management Summit in New York. The awards recognized innovation by insurance and risk management service providers. Products and services ranging from an international insurance information database to a book on financial risk management have been recognized with 2012 Innovation Awards. The winning entries were selected by an independent panel of judges who are all risk management professionals. The new predictive model launched in August by Liberty Mutual can provide greater clarity as to the medical and non-medical conditions that can prolong workers' compensation claims and an opportunity to mitigate those conditions early on. A senior vice president of workers' compensation and managed care at Liberty Mutual said that the tool puts, uh, puts Liberty Mutual in a much stronger position to focus on that small subset of cases that have the greatest opportunity to become high-cost claims. The model compares an incoming workers' comp claim and the medical history of the injured worker to the more than 825,000 lost time claims Liberty Mutual has on file. The program can then produce a probable estimate of a claim's total cost and duration. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And please remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.